with the coronavirus. Um, we have several. Um, one one faculty member that I know of who's recovering, um, and then one seminarian, and then a number of others, and some who have also have died. So we want to keep them in our prayers. Uh, and again, once again, all of our healthcare workers, our doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, all those on the front lines uh, fighting the virus. So I commend that to you. Well, tonight, which is our second to last class, we're going to address two important questions in ecclesiology. The first one is, who belongs to the Church of God? And the second one is, what does it mean to say, outside of the church, there is no salvation? I don't know if you ever heard of that expression. Um, but we'll go into that as well in the second part. So when we consider the Catholic teaching that there is only one undivided church of Christ, then the question arises, who is a part of that one undivided church? How far do the boundaries of the church extend? According to the documents of Vatican II, there seems to be a difference between membership, membership in the church in a true and strict sense and various ways of being related or linked to the true church of Christ. So let's start with Lumen Gentium 14, and then we'll go from there. Uh, that's on your handouts, right? Lumen Gentium 14, which talks about who is um, fully incorporated into the Church of Christ? Okay. Uh, Dan, would you read that for us, please? Hello. Uh, All right. Uh, someone, someone, read that for us. Anybody? Paul, can you hear that? I got you. I got you. I got it. I just had to unmute my mic. Okay. Lumen Gentium 14, fully incorporated into the church are those who possessing the spirit of Christ accept all means of salvation given to the church together with her entire organization and who by the bonds const uh, constituted by the profession of faith, the sacraments, ecclesiastical government and communion are joined to the, joined in the visible structure of the church of christ who rules her through the supreme pontiff and the bishops even though incorporated into the church one does not however uh, preserve persevere in charity is not saved he remains indeed in the bosom of the church but in body not in heart all children of the church should nevertheless remember that they, their exalted condition results not from their own merits, but from the grace of Christ. If they fail to respond in thought, word and deed to that grace, not only shall they not be saved, but they shall be more severely judged. Now, that's a powerful um, statement. 
So we're, tell, we're being told who is fully incorporated into the church. Well, certainly Catholics, Eastern as well as Roman Rite Catholics, right? But there's also a severe warning in there to Catholics who, for example, don't practice the faith, don't avail themselves of grace, don't attend Mass on Sundays, um, don't live according to what it means to be a member of the Church of Christ. Okay, they are they remain members of the Church, as it says, in the bosom of the Church. They are there, but their heart is not there. They're physically there, and sometimes not physically there. Very often, not physically there. But the point is, their hearts are not engaged. So. Um, they don't, they don't cooperate with the grace of Christ. They may live in a way that is really no different than any non-believer. They may come to church maybe at Christmas and Easter or Palm Sunday, if they come at all. Um, but the church has no real uh, impact or influence or effect in their lives. Okay? They may be indifferent. They were baptized, they may have received all the sacraments, and then you never see them again, maybe until they get married. That's been my experience, too, as a pastor. So there's a great warning there, right? So we have now who are members fully incorporated. But what about the other Christians, the separated churches and the ecclesial communities? And I'll define those in a minute. There's only one undivided church of Christ. So let's first look at what Lumen Gentium now, number eight, has to say about that. Uh, Dan, are you with us? Daniel. Dan, 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 yeah, I apologize, Father. I'm trying to bring up the site. I know the written material right now. Don't worry about it. Uh, Diane, would you read for us, please? Lumen Gentium number eight. The church, constituted and organized in the world as a society, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter, by the bishops in communion with him. Although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside of her visible structure, these elements, as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ, are forces impelling toward Catholic unity. Okay, so the term you're being introduced to now, it's a very important term in Catholic ecclesiology, the term subsists, and we'll get to, we'll get to that uh, later in a minute, what that really means, okay? Now, there's a complementary text from the Decree on Ecumenism of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, it's called Unitatis Regintentgratio, which it translates as the reestablishment of unity. And Unitatis number three uh, gives the same kind of, um, um, a diff just another way of looking at it. Uh, Joan, please. Some and even very many of the significant elements and endowments which together go to build up and give life to the church itself can exist outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic church, the written word of God the life of grace, faith, hope, and charity, with the other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, and visible elements too. 
all of these which come from Christ and lead back to Christ belong by right to the one church of Christ. Okay, so these are the different elements that Lumen Gentium 8 is speaking about, and Unitatis number 3 has uh, basically flushed out for us. Okay, What are those other elements of truth and sanctification that exist outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church? And, you know, we're, we're told what they are. We'll come back to that uh, later. But the key thing here is that in both Lumen Gentium 8 and Unitatis number 3, we're being told that those gifts of uh, those elements of truth and sanctification belong to the Church of Christ. Uh, Unitatis says, belong by right to the one Church of Christ. Because the one Church of Christ possesses all the elements of truth and sanctification that our Lord willed his church to have for the salvation of souls. Okay? He bestowed them to his one church, but they are seen in other, other churches and ecclesial communities as well. Now, the same document in Unitatis um, 22, I'm just going to use Unitatis instead of trying to quote, you know, read the whole Latin uh, uh, title. In Unitatis 23, uh, 22, it talks about that the bond of baptism already establishes among all those who, uh, who have been incorporated in Christ. In other words, baptism is the sacrament that incorporates all Christians into Christ himself and into the divine life. Okay, So the very fact that someone is baptized uh, but is not a formal member of the Catholic Church um, a bond is still established between that non-Catholic Christian and the Catholic Church. So we have a bond with all the separated brethren, uh, all the ecclesial communities, uh, as well as the Eastern Orthodox because of baptism. Okay? Now, the Congregation for the Sacred Doctrine of the Faith uh, wrote a commentary on responses to some questions regarding certain aspects of the doctrine on the church. This come, now, this is a late document. This one came out in 2007. Um, and I gave you the link there, right? Mm-hmm. Now, is there, did I give you a quote from that document? Did I, get, did I give you a quote from that document? No, okay. No. So, so basically, this document serves to correct some misguided and erroneous teachings of some Catholic theologians, Leonard Boff, to be precise, would be one of them, who wrote that the one true Church of Christ, quote, is able to subsist in other Christian churches. That's what he wrote. So now, whenever a theologian espouses a position that is contrary to Catholic teaching, and pray God we don't see too much of it now, but we did, we did a lot, you know, uh, years ago, even in the, the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. Um, the church is going to respond to that. So this document is a response to that and to that of other theologians. So he says that this, this true church, this one true church can subsist in other Christian communities. 
The church rejects that notion and clarifies in this document the meaning of the word subsists. Okay? In the Vatican Council II itself, um, and in other church documents, the word, um, the word est in Latin, is, was used. For example, the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. The Council of Vatican II changed the word from is to subsist. And one of the church fathers, um, when he saw that word subsist, <laughs> he said, rivers of ink are going to spill about this particular word and what it means. And his words turned out to be true. Because in some ways it's easier to say the, the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church than to say that it subsists in. Because people can understand, any lay Catholic in the pew, any uneducated even person, can understand when you say, the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. No problem. But when you say subsist, they'll say, what? What's that word? What, what do you mean by subsist? They, they may never even heard that word before. <laughs> so there's been a lot of talk and a lot of writing about this, what it means. But as we're going to see... There is a reason why the council decided to use that word, uh, subsists. So let's look at some of what that document uh, said. Even though other formulations said that the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church, and Vatican II said that the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, the this particular document now clarified in 2007 that the Vatican Council II did not change the teaching of the church concerning her own nature and identity. This is very important, right? Because she uses the word subsist doesn't mean she's saying that the Church of Christ uh, isn't the Catholic Church, right? There's no, no change in teaching at all, all right? There's a development of doctrine here. There's another nuanced way of understanding uh, the church and her nature and identity, right? Remember, the church never changes her teachings. Rather, they are developed. They develop. And we're going to see more of this as we go when we talk about the, 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 uh, the very controversial uh, phrase, outside of the church there is no salvation. So... There's, there's no words, there's a refinement um, in comparison to these other formulations which just came out and said the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. So, um, the Second Vatican Council did not intend to change and therefore has not changed the previously held doctrine on the church. It merely developed this doctrine and articulated it in a more organic way. This, in fact, is what Pope uh, uh, St. Paul VI said in his discourse promulgating the dogmatic constitution Lumen Gentium. He said that uh, the church had not changed her traditional doctrine on the church, but rather, quote, that which was assumed is now explicit 
That which was uncertain is now clarified. That which was meditated upon, discussed, and sometimes argued over is now put together in one clear formulation. All right. I will hold you in suspense no longer. What do we mean when we say that the one church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church? Well, by saying that the church, Catholic Church, the Church of Christ rather, subsists in the Catholic Church, what we mean is that she is the one church that Christ founded and that, quote, the perduring historical continuity and the permanence of all the elements instituted by Christ for his church are found in her. So the Church of Christ abides in, dwells in, and possesses all the elements of truth and sanctification permanently that Jesus willed his church to have for the salvation of souls. That's what subsists me, right? And in fact, all the elements, not some, it's not like the separated churches and ecclesial communities have some and we have some. Like, you know, you have some, they have some, we have some, and together we're the Church of Christ. No, that is not the Church's teaching. All the elements Christ willed his Church to have are found only in the Catholic Church. That's why she's the true Church. One reason why she's the true Church. We've already gone over that why she is. Christ founded her, etc. But we don't go back. We don't have to go backwards. There is no such thing then as a partial subsistence in other ecclesial communities or separated churches, right? There's no partial subsistence, okay? Now, those elements include, obviously, the Word of God, all the seven sacraments, sacred tradition with a capital T, the papacy, the Eucharist, especially, the Mass, all the divinity of Christ, is life, death, and resurrection, and all the other dogmatic truths that the Church uh, receives and teaches, okay? The, the episcopacy, the priesthood, the diaconate, all of those are elements that Christ willed his Church to have, and they exist in their totality only in the Catholic Church. They subsist in the Catholic Church. They dwell and abide in her and her alone. Kabish. Uh -huh. So, let's look at Catechism Entry 819 now. Someone with an eloquent voice. That won't be me. James. At least you have a young voice, James. <laughs> Furthermore, many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. The written word of God, the life of grace, faith, hope, and charity, with the other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, as well as visible elements. Christ's Spirit uses these churches and ecclesial co communities as means of salvation. 
whose power derives from the fullness of grace and truth that Christ has entrusted to the Catholic Church. All these blessings come from Christ and lead to him, and are in themselves calls to Catholic unity. Okay, now that's, that particular entry in the Catechism is basically saying that all those elements that are listed there that exist outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church, there's no denying that. Um, if you were to go into a, uh, to a Baptist worship service, for example, they're going to be worshiping who? Our Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? They believe in the Trinity as we do, okay? Um, and the Lord is going to use those elements that exist in those separated churches and ecclesial communities for their own sanctification and their salvation, okay? But their efficacy and their power comes through their relationship to the Catholic Church because these belong by right to her. Okay? It's almost as if all those things passed from the Catholic Church to these other communities and they received their sanctifying power from the Catholic Church and the Spirit working through her. Okay? Now let's look at Lumen Gentium 15. I'll do it, Father. Excuse me. Okay, the church knows that she is joined in many ways to the baptized who are honored by the name of Christian, but who do not, however, possess the Catholic faith in its entirety or have not preserved unity or communion under the successor of her Peter. For there are many who hold sacred scripture in honor as a rule of faith and of life, who have a sincere religious zeal, who lovingly believe in God, the Father the Almighty, and in Christ, the Son of God and the Savior, who are sealed by baptism, which unifies them to Christ, and who indeed recognizes and receives other sacraments in their own churches or central communities. Many of them possess the apostolate celebrate the Holy Eucharist, and cultivate devotion of the Virgin Mother of God. There is furthermore a sharing in the prayer and spiritual benefits. These Christians are indeed in some real way joined us in the Holy Spirit for by his gifts and graces, his sanctifying power is also active in them. And he has strengthened some of them, even to the shredding of their blood, and so the spirit sits, stirs up desires and actions in all Christ's disciples in order that all may be peacefully united as Christ ordained in one flock under one shepherd. Mother Church never ceases to pray, hope, and work that this may be achieved. And she exhorts her children to purification and to renewal so that the sign of, the, of Christ may shine more brightly over the face of the church. Okay, so there are people, as we know, uh, Christians who who do have not do not profess the entire Catholic faith, uh, who have um, not preserved unity, and by that they're speaking of both here in the beginning of that uh, document entry. They're speaking both of the uh, Eastern Orthodox as well as the separated Protestant communities. Um, 
but they hold sacred scripture as a rule of faith and life, sometimes too much, right, we would say, because they negate the reality of sacred tradition as a font of revelation, the channel of divine revelation. So, you know, there's a problem there, but they do honor the written word of God, and um, they're sealed by baptism. Um, it says some of them possess the episcopate, uh, celebrate the Holy Eucharist, and venerate the Holy Mother of God. So there they were talking about, clearly, the Orthodox, okay? Um, the Episcopalians have an episcopate too, but it, we don't consider it a valid episcopate. And they, or a valid Eucharist for that matter. Um, but they don't even believe, what, as we do most of them. Depends on whether you're in the middle, uh, low, high, or in the or middle Episcopalian. Um, some of them have shed their blood, have been martyrs. There have been certainly non-Catholic Christians who have died for the sake of Christ, okay, as well. Nevertheless, the term subsist in was chosen over a simple is because of the fact acknowledged by the council that, quote, numerous elements of sanctification and truth are found outside her structure which as gifts properly belonging to the Church of Christ impel towards Catholic unity. In other words, they possess many of the, um, not many, but some, of the elements of truth and sanctification that we, we have in our totality. Uh, so we try to use that common ground to promote unity, right? We talk when we're in an ecumenical dialogue with the various um, Christian communities that are separated from us, we always begin with what we hold in common, right? We don't start with, uh, ecumenical dialogue doesn't start with, let's talk about what divides us. First, they talk about what unites us. And then they get attacked, then theologians attack the thornier issues of what we, are, what, we, what we disagree on. And we try to come to some common understanding. Um, and sometimes through this dialogue, um, we realized the non-Christians, non-Catholic Christians realized that when they thrash this all out with Catholic theologians, they're much, much closer to the Catholic position than they themselves even thought or knew. Uh, they didn't quite, un one of the biggest problems I think here is that a lot of, a lot of non-Catholic Christians just don't understand Catholicism. They don't understand what true Catholic teaching is. And when you explain it to them, it makes more sense. And sometimes we come, we inch actually closer and closer to a common understanding to the point where we've actually signed declarations with some of these churches agreeing on the nature of this or the nature of that doctrine. Okay? So that's what it means by uh, impelling us towards Christian, uh, towards Catholic unity. Father? Yes. Does it matter how divergent the teachings of the different and the non-Catholic Church are? For example, the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, so, and yeah, so wait a minute now. Wait a minute. We don't consider Mormons true Christians. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. We don't so accept their baptism, for example. Right. In order to be considered a Christian in the proper sense. 
uh, a church or ecclesial community must practice baptism in the way we understand it to be valid. So you took, well, you didn't know, you didn't take sacramental theology, but, you know, you basically, I'm going to get to that a little bit. I'll get to that, but I understand your point. No, you don't have a dialogue, as far as I know, right now with the Mormons. And also Jehovah's Witnesses don't. don't And the Jehovah's Witnesses. But also, similarly, what if the teaching is anti-Catholic? For example, the pastor that President Trump uh, took Easter services from, uh, you know, part of his teaching was that the the magisterium was demonic. I mean, how could we possibly be in communion with a church like that? Well, we're not in communion with a church like that. That's the bottom line. We're not. Right? We would like to be, but some of them are very, very radical um, and not very conciliatory. Right. So, you know, you'll have fundamentalists, uh, Christians, uh, and, and, you know, um, whether they're Pentecostal Christians or evangelical Christians of different, again, they get different, they run, they're all different denominations like that, 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 that follow sola scriptura, right. and they think that the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon, right. and that all Catholics are going to hell. Right. So, you know, it's hard to have any kind of a dialogue with people like that. Right. So until they're ready to come around, if and when they ever are, you know, we don't enter into a dialogue with them. Although on moral teachings, now here's the thing with on doctrinal things. Okay. We agree on the divinity of Christ, the, the Holy Trinity, um, baptism with, I'm talking now about more evangelical Pentecostal fundamentalist Christians. We agree with them on those basic things, those basic truths. But on moral teachings, we're on the same page, mostly. I mean, they they oppose abortion. They oppose infanticide. They oppose gay marriage. Um, you know, so we're, 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 we're one with them in that regard, you know. Uh, and, you know, frequently you will be marching at the March for Life in Washington You'll be marching with people like that, with Christians who, you know, side by side with them, right? So, although these other churches uh, and ecclesial communities do have these other elements of truth and sanctification, um, the fullness of them resides only in the Catholic Church. That's very important. Ecclesial bodies separated from full Catholic unity can be used by God as instruments of salvation, right? But, as I said before, their power, their efficacy, relies on those gifts within them that belong properly and by right to the Catholic Church as her own. This is a very important point in Catholic doctrine. And the council, Vatican II, excuse me, didn't want to draw a circle around the Catholic Church and then ignore the fact that other Christian denominations also possess elements uh, for salvation, as if those other churches contained only falsehood and error. 
the one true church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. You know, you're going to be sick and tired of hearing me say this. It's like I'm, blooming the, uh, I'm gilding the bloom and lily, as they say. But, that, but outside of her boundaries are many elements that are found outside of her structure. We've already talked about what they are. Um, but there is not found outside of the Catholic Church that fullness of truth that resides only in her. Okay? Ecclesial bodies separated from full Catholic unity, as I say, they may be used by God as instruments of salvation because they have um, baptism, they have the word of God, uh, many of them try to live by that word of God, okay? Uh, they have the Ten Commandments, the scriptures, they live by that, right? But their efficacy relies on the gifts that belong properly and only to the Catholic Church. It was the Catholic Church alone that Christ gave all the means of sanctification and salvation. He entrusted the scriptures and their proper interpretation to the one church. He entrusted the seven sacraments, unlike the separated brethren who just have two or one. He entrusted the sacred ministry of diaconate, priesthood, and episcopacy, the ministry of the successor of Peter, the papacy. Okay? So even where those elements exist outside of the Catholic Church, they are, in a sense, borrowed from the Catholic Church and belong to her. Not as something that is stolen <laughs> by these other communities, but which are part of the Catholic Church's bounty, right? But still exists outside of her visible structures, even though unity was shattered centuries ago. Are you all clear about that now? I hope. This may be new to you, so make sure you understand it because there are questions there, you know, on, uh, on your on your review questions. Father. Yes. It's uh, Will. Yeah, Will. Um, so if I, when I look at uh, some of the readings and, and some of the early church fathers, they were much more, um, they were clear that the Catholic Church was the true church and that there was no salvation outside the church. Yeah. And Vatican II, in this ecumenical movement, in order to achieve unity in the whole church, actually divided the Catholic Church because when they used the word subsistent, which they must have used for a reason, they divided the very church that they thought to be the true church. No, 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 so, that is not, no, that is not true. That okay. is not true at all. I just told you why we use the term subsists, because these churches, these ecclesial bodies, do possess elements of truth and sanctification. There's no denying that. Now, later on, Will, when we talk about what you just said, the outside of the church there's no salvation i'm going to give you some of the quotes from those church fathers and we're going to look at that and see what happened okay so don't jump to a conclusion that is not true okay before we go over it all right thank you the third question asks why the expression again subsists in 
was used rather than the verb est or is, okay? All right, and again, it's precisely this change of terminology in the description of the relationship between the Church of Christ and the Catholic Church. That's what's given rise to many varied interpretations, above all in the field of ecumenism, okay? In reality, the Council Fathers of Vatican II simply intended to recognize the presence of ecclesial elements proper to the Church of Christ in non-Catholic Christian communities. They were facing reality. You can't just say, you can't deny the fact that they, they have the Word of God, they have baptism, right? They believe in the Trinity, they believe in heaven and hell, all right? They believe in some semblance of church authority, different from ours, okay? Um, so, but it does not follow that the identification of the Church of Christ with the Catholic Church no longer holds, okay? Nor that outside the Catholic Church, there is a complete absence of ecclesial elements. That would be to deny reality, right? Like a churchless void, right? What it does mean is that the expression subsists in, subsisted in, in Latin, okay? is considered in a true context, namely, in reverence to the Church of Christ, constituted and organized in this world as a society governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Then the change from is to subsist in takes on no particular theological significance of discontinuity with previous held Catholic doctrines, right? When the church said, went from it is to subsist, she did not, I said this at the beginning, she did not change her teaching on her nature or identity. She is still the true, one true church of Christ. That, that's, that's, she's always taught truth from the beginning of the church for centuries. That hasn't changed. That's why it says, that's why there's no theological, real theological, deep theological significance. It doesn't mark some change in church doctrine about her, her own ecclesiology. There's continuity there. It's simply recognizing that there are other elements in other Christian churches and ecclesial bodies that she wants to recognize. Okay? In fact, precisely because the church willed by Jesus actually continues to exist in the Catholic Church, abides in the Catholic Church, dwells in the Catholic Church, subsists in the Catholic Church, that this continuity of subsistence implies an essential identity between the Church of Christ and the Catholic Church. The Council wanted to teach that we encounter the Church of Jesus Christ as a concrete historical subject in the Catholic Church. Okay? The idea that subsistence can somehow be multiplied uh, does not express what was intended by the choice of the word subsist by the Council Fathers. Okay? In choosing the word, the Council intended to express the singularity, and not the uh, uh, multipliability of the Church of Christ. The church exists as a unique historical reality as one church. 
right? She didn't intend to say, oh, there's a multiplicity of churches of Christ. It's not what the church, the councils intended when they used the term subsist. Okay. Contrary to many unfounded interpretations, therefore, the change from is est to subsistent uh, or subsists in doesn't signify at all that the Catholic Church has ceased to regard herself as the one true church of Christ. Okay, it's not what the council taught, right? Rather, it is simply, it simply signifies a greater openness to the ecumenical desire to, 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 um, to recognize the genuine ecclesial characteristics and dimensions in the Christian communities, not in full communion with the Catholic Church, right? Otherwise, we would never get anywhere with unity, you know, if we were to deny these elements that are there, clearly for anyone with eyes to see, you know, we'd be we'd be we'd be on a on a sandbar. We would never get beyond. We wouldn't be able to enter into dialogue with them. We wouldn't be able to seek common ground with them. We wouldn't be able to seek what Jesus willed for His Church, which is unity. Okay. The ecumenical movement, by the way, is not an option for Catholics, right? It's not a, it's not a, um, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, right? You have to have ecumenism, right? What is ecumenism? Well, we'll talk more about the, the goals of ecumenism in a bit, right? So, the separation of churches and individuals from full communion with the Bishop of Rome and therefore with the Catholic Church... Uh, does not divide the church herself, okay? But that separation does introduce obstacles to full unity of all the baptized desired by Jesus. And I think I gave you the quote from John 17, right? That they may all be one as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Those are the words of our Lord, who foresaw, because of his omniscience as God, uh, the divisions uh, and the break and the separations that would occur in later ages. Okay? In fact, that disunity we find uh, among Christians is a scandal in the sense that it obscures the unity willed by Jesus for his church. Okay? And it makes it more difficult for those outside of the church um, so the, the, the church is supposed to be, is to be a, uh, an image of the blessed Trinity, right? A sacrament of unity in the world. So these divisions are not of, of God, right? All right, let's look at Unitatis number four. George, please. All right, Although the Catholic Church has been endowed with all the divinely revealed truth, with all means of grace, yet its members fail to live by them with the fervor that they have shown, so that the radiance of the Church's images 
is less clear in the eyes of all our separated brethren and of the world at large and the growth of God's kingdom delayed. All Catholics must therefore aim at Christian perfection and each according to his own station. I, his part on the church may delay, may daily be more purified and renewed. For the church must bear in her own body the humility and the dying of Jesus against the day when Christ present her to himself all her glory without spot or wrinkle. Okay. So separated from this full communion uh, are not only baptized individuals, of course, but whole communities. Groups of baptized individuals and in some cases distinct particular churches. Um, Unitatis uh, talks about that. So we speak of individuals, communities, and even churches that are separated from full communion with the Catholic Church. Now, the term church only includes those that have an episcopacy and therefore apostolic succession and holy Eucharist, a valid Eucharist. That would refer then to all the churches of the East because they maintain the apostolic succession and therefore have a valid episcopacy, a valid priesthood, a valid Eucharist, although they are separated from full communion with the Catholic Church. So we refer to the Eastern Christians, the Eastern Orthodox, as separated churches, right? We dignify them with the term church. And Catechism Entry 1399 puts it very succinctly there uh, for us. Uh, Colleen, please. The Eastern churches that are not in full communion with the Catholic Church celebrate the Eucharist with great love. These churches, although separated from us, yet possess true sacraments, above all, by apostolic succession, the priesthood, and the Eucharist whereby they are still joined to us in closest intimacy. A certain communion in sacris, and so in the Eucharist, given suitable circumstances and the approval of church authority is not merely possible, but is encouraged. So this is why uh, Pope St. John Paul II, uh, and after him, Benedict XVI, uh, work tirelessly to promote unity among the Catholics and the Orthodox because we are closest to them in faith and morals and doctrine. And because they are true churches, although separated from us, they possess these, they possess the Episcopacy, priesthood, and Eucharist. Uh, so we try to, we've been trying very hard to promote unity with them first, okay? There are some bodies of Christians who are separated from full communion, usually later in history, that did not maintain the apostolic succession, an episcopacy, or a priesthood, and therefore do not have the Eucharist in the sense that the Catholic Church understands it. Those other bodies do not even believe, in most cases, uh, that what the Catholic Church understands by the Eucharist uh, that the consecration that at the consecration of the mass, the bread and wine 
are transubstantiated into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and only the appearance or accidents remain. Uh, the real presence of Jesus. They don't believe that. So we as Catholics do not confer on those bodies uh, the term churches, right? Those bodies separated from the Catholic Church without those uh, elements are termed ecclesial communities. These would include all the Protestant denominations. They are ecclesial communities. They refer to themselves as a church, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Congregational church, uh, and so on, because they and others, um, but because they and others lack the apostolic succession, uh, a valid episcopacy, priesthood, and Eucharist, uh, elements that are too fundamental to what constitutes a church, we refer to them as ecclesial communities. Now, ecclesia does contain the idea of a church, right? The word ecclesia uh, is church. And they are bound to the Catholic Church by the gifts that they possess. But what is important to understand is that when we look at that separation, baptism in the documents of Vatican II underline this for us, by the way. Baptism, as I said at the beginning, establishes a bond between the Catholic Church and those who are separated from full communion with the Catholic Church. We say full communion because that means that there, there, there is a communion that is established among all Christians by the very fact of baptism, even if baptism is performed by a Protestant minister or even by a layperson, as long as they have the intention of doing what the church does and follow and they use the proper form and matter for baptism so in a nutshell uh, baptism the proper form and matter water is the matter form i baptize you in the name of the father poor in the name of the, and of the son or and of the holy spirit poor so that would be a baptism by using the proper trinitarian formula and water you can't use oil to baptize somebody. You can't use whiskey, as far as I know. Right? Water is the pos is the proper f form uh, matter. Every sacrament, if you ever take sacramental theology, every sacrament has its matter and has its form. Okay. If there is doubt about the validity of a baptism, a conditional baptism can be performed. Um, but if they use the proper form and matter then we consider that baptism to be valid, okay? Um, we say that the ecclesial communities share a partial and imperfect communion with the Catholic Church because they do not have all the elements willed by Jesus for his church. So, so all of the ecclesial communities, all the Protestants and other nations, they share a partial and perfect communion with us. It's partial because they only have partial elements of truth and sanctification. Therefore, their, their, their communion with us is imperfect. Okay? Even so, um, for, I mean, just, just to back up a bit, when I was a pastor 
or even just a parochial vicar is in a parish, whenever I had to perform a wedding between a Catholic and a non-Catholic Christian, um, the very first things we needed, we needed the baptismal certificates of both parties to determine if they are um, free to marry and then whether it will be a true sacramental marriage or not. Okay. And if, let's say, I was going to marry a Catholic and a Baptist, or a Catholic and a Methodist, or Episcopalian, they would produce their baptismal certificate, and it would tell you on there that they were baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That would be considered by us a valid baptism. Okay, But if it was a Mormon, we knew that that, that, that was not going to be a, a sacramental marriage. Okay? And then we've had other cases where there was a question about whether the baptism was valid or not. Sometimes you had a trial problems even getting a hold of them. But if they use the proper form and matter, we consider that valid. However, those who enjoy uh, this partial but imperfect communion with the Catholic Church can be joined to her in some ways more fruitfully than a Catholic who, though nominally belonging to the Catholic Church, is in full communion, fully incorporated into the Catholic Church as a Catholic, fails to live in charity and the avoidance of serious sin. That person is a Catholic in number, in name, but not by grace. A person who is in partial communion with us may be more fruitfully bound uh, than than that person, than that Catholic. You have a you have a non-Catholic Christian who worships sometimes daily, uh, some certainly every Sunday. Sometimes their services they only have one service; it can go on for two or three hours, and they're truly trying to live. And I saw this. I saw this when I was a, a parochial victor in Wilton. There was a huge uh, evangelical church there, I forget the name of it, um, and they had great works of mercy, they worshipped every day, uh, and then you had Catholics, they were Catholics, but they never came to Mass. You never saw them. Even their thinking was like that of the world. Their minds were not formed by the truth. You know, they accepted abortion contraception and dissent and I mean you know just so that's what that, that's, that's kind of what the church is trying to get at here okay. we do refer to these members of these ecclesial communities as Christians precisely because they share baptism with us okay but we don't call them churches we call them ecclesial communities let us look at uh, catechism entry 818 We'll go with Father. Thank you. However, however, one cannot charge with the sin of separation those who are present are born into these communities as a result of such separation, and in them are brought up in the faith of Christ, and the Catholic Church accepts them with respect and affection as brothers, all of whom have been justified by baptism and corporation to Christ. They therefore have a right to be called Christians, with the good reason are accepted as brothers the Lord by the children of the Catholic Church. Okay, so again, we don't say that the separated brethren 
are guilty of the sin of heresy or apostasy. All right, because that happened centuries ago. You can't you can't um, you can't impute to them the guilt of these sins against unity because they were born into these communities, right? Those who broke with the church at the time, yes, they are guilty of the sin of heresy and apostasy and also schism, okay? So let's look at what baptism does and how it creates a bond between the Catholic church and individuals and even whole uh, communities of Christians who do not share full communion with us. First of all, baptism enables Christians to offer common Christian prayer uh, together. Uh, notice I ne didn't necessarily say worship, because for Catholics, the supreme act of worship is the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Certainly, those who are not baptized can pray to God and be heard, but Christian prayer is a very distinct kind of reality. Baptism inserts us into the life of Christ, sanctifying grace, in such a way that when we pray, uh, it is in fact Christ praying to the Father in and through us. When we pray, we're caught up into Christ's own prayer relationship with the Father. And we relate to God, not only as creatures to God creator, but as children to the Father. See? Baptism then enables all Christians, Catholic and non-Catholic, to pray together in that way. So even though we cannot celebrate the sacred liturgy together, it is a good thing that we can at least pray together. Okay? I remember when I was a parochial victor in Wilton at Our Lady of Fatima Church, it was my first assignment. Um, every year we had an ecumenical Thanksgiving service um, in November, and it would be held at one of the various churches. We had a, actually we had a Wilton clergy association, which I was a member of, and all the pastors of the various uh, ecclesial communities were present there except for the Jewish, well, even the Jewish rabbi occasionally came, but it was mostly the, the non-Catholic Christians, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, uh, the Methodists, the Baptists, etc. Congregationalists, they all came. We had most trouble actually with the Episcopalians um, because they were trying constantly pushing for intercommunion with us. Um, so we had this, and we held at different churches, and one of us would preach at that service. Every year it'd be someone different. And then in the spring, we had an ecumenical baccalaureate service for the graduating seniors of Wilton High School. And again, it was held at one of the churches, um, and one of us were chosen or volunteered to, to, to give the homily at that. We also had, um, let me try to remember, we also had what was called um, a pulpit exchange with them. I remember going to the Episcopal Church, I preached there, I preached at the Baptist Church, um, and even though when I went to the Episcopal Church, the pastor invited me to receive communion, I had to politely decline. So I gave my homily, and then I, then I went in my pew and prayed the rosary for the rest of the service, quietly, discreetly. So 
you know, these are things we can do because of our common baptism. And the liturgy of the word in common is also possible, right, among the baptized. While it is not possible with those who are unbaptized, because Christian prayer is made possible by our Christian identity gained through baptism, okay? We can't receive Holy Communion together, but not even with the Orthodox, uh, who also have a valid Eucharist and a priesthood, because we haven't achieved full unity with them, and they don't want us to receive in their church anyway, okay? But we can share the liturgy of the word, okay? So full Eucharistic communion, I know we're, we're due for our break in a minute. Full Eucharistic communion, including concelebration of bishops and priests, is only possible with full ecclesial communion as a reality. So from the Catholic point of view, intercommunion is the goal of the ecumenical movement when full communion is restored. Then we go and celebrate a genuine full communion at the altar together and can receive communion. So when the Episcopal pastor that year invited me to con celebrate the Eucharist with him there, and I politely declined, you know, I couldn't get into all of this with him as to why. But this is the reason. Because there isn't, there isn't a real communion. I'm not going to do it just to play nice. You don't just do it because it looks good or because the, 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 the pastor of the other church thinks it would be a nice thing to do in front of all the people. No. First you arrive at genuine unity, then you celebrate that unity in the Eucharist together. Because then that reflects reality and truth, whereas the other does not. Okay, That would be falsehood. Now, with regard to those separated churches that possess a valid Eucharist and priesthood, the, the Orthodox, the Eastern churches, um, some worship in common, uh, it says in Unitatis 15, given suitable circumstances and the approval of church authority is not only possible, but to be encouraged. So, um, so you have to pay attention to the current situation and to the authorizations that have been given by the church as to what we're able to do together and what we're not able to do together, okay? Uh, and those guidelines have been issued by the USCCB and appear at the back of uh, most uh, missalettes, right? The, the church is teaching on intercommunion concerning Catholics, non-Catholic Christians, and non-baptized people. It tells you those three categories are all there, okay? Um, okay. All right, I'm going to give you a break because we're, we're not, well, well, we're almost finished with this section. Would you mind if I finish this section? Then when we come back, we could do part two. Um, there are practical consequences of the current divisions. Catholics may not receive communion in a community that does not possess a valid priesthood and Eucharist. Nor may we admit to Holy Communion someone who does not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Let's look at Catechism Entry 1400. Some of this is going to apply to deacons, 
um, and also to extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. Um, John Tremblay. Coming. Here we go. Ecclesial communities derived from the Reformation and separated from the Catholic Church have not preserved the proper reality of the Eucharistic mystery in its fullness, especially because of the absence of the sacred holy orders. It is for this reason that, for the Catholic Church, Eucharistic intercommunion with these communities is not possible. However, these ecclesial communities, when they are when they commemorate the Lord's death and resurrection in the Holy Supper, that profess that it signifies life and communion with Christ and await his coming in glory. Okay, so again, they don't believe as we do about the Eucharist, the real presence. So we cannot admit, and there's no real communion, full communion. So we can't admit them to communion. Um, an Episcopal pastor actually got upset because he wanted to receive communion in the Catholic Church. And the pastor said, I'm sorry, you cannot, you know? Um, and one day, this is a true story. This was like, you know, 35 years ago or whatever. One day I, I happened to be at the Episcopal Church for some reason. I actually celebrated, a, a con I assisted at a wedding there with him. Um, Secretary of State Baker's niece was being married, and he was there. It was a big, big to-do. And afterwards, he comes up to me with this uh, marriage program, wedding mass program, holding it like this, showing me. Here, i got to show you this. It was of a church in Quincy, Massachusetts, where a Catholic and an Episcopalian were getting married in the context of a Catholic mass. And he was there to assist as her pastor. At the bottom of the program, it said, all are welcome to approach Holy Communion. All. So he said to me, so why can't you do it? He, he did it. He invited, he even spoke about it in the homily. He was invited, he said, we're Christians, we're, sac we're bound by his baptism. We should all, you're all welcome to receive communion at communion time. Everybody, without exception. Catholic or non-Catholic? Maybe there are some Jews there that come up and say, Oy vey, when you say the body of Christ. So I'm looking at this, and I said to him, well, he should not have done this. I mean, this is... So you know what I had to do? I had to play the heavy. I wrote a letter to the Chancery of the Archdiocese of Boston. I made a copy of the program, and I sent it to him. It had the pastor's name and everything. I said... Uh, so, uh, you're giving communion now in the Archdiocese of Boston to not have weddings for non-Catholics? And I got a kind of curt, snarky letter back uh, from the Chancellor stating, I can assure you, I can almost quote it, I can assure you, Father, that the Archdiocese of Boston upholds the, the norms of the Universal Church in, when it comes to intercommunion, and this priest should not have done that, and we will, we will address it on our end. So I'm only sharing that story with you because when you become ordained, if you get ordained as deacons, you know, or you have a priest or a pastor, you don't have the authority to be inviting non-Catholics to receive communion. That is a violation of church law and practice and doctrine. You don't do that, right? Now, there are exceptions, and we'll get to them in a minute. 
Okay. So we have to work at, you know, healing these divisions, right? So that we can establish full communion with one another. Um, and do you know what the goal of the ecumenical moment is? That they may be one to bring to fulfill. Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah, through dialogue and so on. But the Catholic Church and her practice of ecumenism, properly understood, we make no compromises with what we, what we believe and what we teach. We're not going to water down mm. our Catholic teaching to achieve <laughs> a unity that isn't real or to speed it up. No, no, no. We don't do that. We do not compromise with our faith in ecumenical dialogue. The purpose of the ecumenical movement is reconciliation of all the separated brethren, the Eastern Rite separated churches, and the separated ecclesial communities with the Holy See of Rome. Kabish? Kabish. That's the goal of the ecumenical movement. Reconciliation of the separated brethren and the ecclesial communities with the Holy See. We have to try, well, we try to convince them using reason, but the rest is to be perhaps divine intervention. The Holy Spirit will have to convict them to see and accept Catholic truth and, and teaching in its fullness. We're not going to say, okay, we'll water down that teaching so you can come in. That's not going to happen. That's never going to happen. It hasn't happened now. It's not going to happen in the future. I don't care who the Pope is. So, and there has been progress. I mean, look at Scott Hahn. Uh, mm -hmm. These were, we have some renowned uh, non-Catholic Christian Protestant scripture scholars mm -hmm. uh, who have converted to Catholic faith when they studied Catholicism. Uh, Scott Hahn, if you ever read his book, um, Home Sweet Rome, it's called. I highly recommend it. He and his wife, um, forget her name. Kimberly, Kimberly, I think. She was a divinity student uh, studying to be a Lutheran pastor. Her father was a, a Lutheran pastor. So she chose for her master divinity uh, uh, thesis um, the teaching on contraception. So in order to, to write this thesis, she had to research Catholic teaching on contraception she went all the way back to uh, the fathers and the scriptures and from beginning to end to the present and you know what she concluded she concluded that the catholics were right about contraception so she went to her father and she said uh, dad um your pastor let me produce the evidence what do you think he was speechless he didn't know what to say Scott Hahn, on the other hand, he set out to refute Catholic errors, as he put it, once and for all. So he made a thorough study of the Eucharist, the papacy, the sacraments, the priesthood, the Virgin Mary, all these purgatory, everything that would separate the Catholics from non-Catholics. He was going to, he was going <laughs> to, he thought he was going to show, expose the falsehood of all of those Catholic teachings. And you know what happened instead? 
he was convicted by the Holy Spirit of the truth of each and every one of them. And he and his wife both entered full communion with the Catholic Church. And now he's one of the greatest Catholic apologists we have. So that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And there are many other, uh, you, can, you can buy these books that tell the conversion stories of these pastors and theologians who, when they study Catholicism and are honest and true, and go back to the fathers especially, to be steeped in history is to cease being a Protestant. Mm. You go back before the Reformation to the fathers, especially the writings of the fathers, they're Catholic. So that's our goal. Let us close. I want to look at some relevant norms and then I'll give you your break. Canon, these are, this is the code of canon law now. Canon 844.1. Um, I don't care. Uh, Robert Levy, are you there? Hello? Yes, I'm here, Father. Please read Canon 844, number one. Catholic ministers administer the sacraments explicitly to Catholic members of the Christian faithful alone, who likewise receive them explicitly from Catholic ministers alone, without prejudice to the prescripts of Numbers 2, 3, and 4. Of this canon and canon 861 S2, referring to a minister of baptism. Okay, now read canon number uh, number two of that canon. Whenever, nece- whenever necessity requires it, or true spiritual advantage suggested, and provided that danger of error or of indifferentism is avoided, the Christian faithful for whom it is physically or morally impossible to approach a Catholic minister are permitted to receive the sacraments of penance, Eucharist, and anointing of the sick from non-Catholic ministers in whose churches these sacraments are valid. Okay, so basically what number two is saying is that if an Orthodox Christian um, is uh, in danger of death or is not able in an area where they cannot receive from their own priest, they can approach us to receive because they do possess these valid sacraments. That's the Orthodox. Now, number three. Go ahead, you might as well continue, Robert. Catholic ministers administer the sacraments of penance, Eucharist, and anointing of the sick licitly to members of Eastern churches which do not have full communion with the Catholic Church if they seek on their own accord and are properly disposed. This is also valid for members of other churches which in the judgment of the Apostolic See are in the same condition in regard to the sacraments as these Eastern churches. Okay, so other churches, which which would be Eastern Rite uh, uh, churches separated from us. Now, number four is very interesting. Um, uh, Vinny, please. If the danger of death is present, or if in the judgment of the diocesan bishop or conference of bishops, some other grave necessity urges it, Catholic ministers administer these same sacraments literally also to other Christians not having full communion with the Catholic Church, who cannot approach a minister of their own community and who seek such on their own accord, provided that they manifest Catholic faith in respect to these sacraments and are properly disposed. Okay, that means that the members of the Protestant churches, Protestant denominations, 
may receive Holy Communion, let's say, or even the Sacrament of Penance, um, if they ask the, for these sacraments on their own and they are in danger of death, and and it's a and if it's a big if, they can profess Catholic faith in those sacraments. But that has to be at the direction of the diocesan bishop. So, for example, um, I performed a wedding of a Catholic and a non-Catholic Protestant. And the bride said to me, my fiancé would like to receive communion at the wedding mass. Is it possible, Father? So I spoke with him, interviewed him. I said, you're approaching of your own free will. Yes. Do you profess Catholic faith in these sacraments? And when I explained the Kirch's teaching on the Eucharist, he professed Catholic faith in the Eucharist. So then what I had to do, you had to write a letter to the bishop weeks ahead of time, asking permission to receive communion at his wedding night, one time and one time only. And provided he fulfilled the requirements, and then the bishop gives, if the bishop grants permission, then you may give him communion that one time and one time only because it's a special occasion. That's what it means by, um, uh, in the judgment of the diocesan bishop, some other grave necessity. So, or there's a danger of death, but it can only with the permission of the diocesan bishop. So you can't go into um, um, now. I don't. I don't want to embarrass anybody. You know, if you're an Eucharistic minister and you're giving communion in a nursing home, you should not be giving communion to non-Catholics, assuming you know that they're non-Catholics, right? Because you still need the bishop's permission. If your bishop has a blanket, which I don't know which bishops do, frankly. But if your bishop had a policy on that that's written somewhere where he says, if you are an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist or priest, deacon, and you're visiting a nursing home and the person is not Catholic, but they profess Catholic faith and they are in danger of death, you may give them communion. But I don't know of any bishops that have that blanket policy. So you really cannot give communion to non-Catholic Christians just because they ask for it. You need the permission of the bishop, okay? And they have to be able to profess Catholic faith in the sacrament, which is not easy to do. Because if they did, why be a Protestant? Someone was going to ask a question? Uh, yes, Father. What about, oh, my, I'm, I'm muted. Um, what about being in the, if you're recognizing Catholic belief in the Eucharist, then what about being in a state of grace? And what about... Um, yes, well, that's why, yeah, that's why that's why this fellow, for example, had to go to confession before he could receive. Okay. Same thing with uh, um, um, uh, people that are preparing for full communion with the RCIA. Mm -hmm. If they're already baptized, they have to go to confession before they can be received into full communion and receive the sacraments on the Easter Vigil. So they go to confession first. If they haven't been baptized, obviously, they don't have to do that because baptism washes away all the sin. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Father? Father? Yes. Uh, what do you do in a situation if you're a Eucharistic minister or deacon and somebody approaches for 
Catholic communion who you know not to be a Catholic. And now there they stand in front of you. I'll tell you what I've done. Um, you can tell right away usually because they either um, don't know what to do. Frequently, they just don't know what to do. Uh, they'll come up and you'll say the body of Christ and they'll look at they'll just look at you and giggle. Uh, that's happened many times to me. Or they'll say thank you. Or they'll just go, they'll look befuddled, like, what am I supposed to do now? So when they do that, I usually discreetly, you know, under my breath, I'll say, excuse me, are you Catholic? No, Father. I said, then I'll give you a blessing. And I give them a blessing, and they're off they go. Are deacons, are deacons permitted to do the same, Father? Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I remember... Yeah, but, I mean, they, they approach with goodwill. Yes. Because they don't know. I remember an incident that happened about 20 years ago uh, with a president of the United States. I won't mention who, so as not to get political, but he was in South Africa at a Catholic mass. He was a Baptist and he approached for communion. The priest gave him communion. He said not to embarrass him. Our Cardinal O'Connor spoke out against it and said, well, I'm not commenting on the president's disposition, but the church teaching is he should not have received communion. Right. which the, the president's office in response said clearly Cardinal O'Connor is not as up to speed with Catholic teaching as the priest is in South Africa. Oh, really? Well, well, I think Cardinal O'Connor was very much up to speed. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you have to be discreet about these things. When I said last week that we give, when people approach, unless they are clearly befuddled and you, you can tell they're not Catholic, we give them communion because we don't know the state of their souls. And if they say amen, well, and they're not Catholic, how are we supposed to know that they're not Catholic? We can't judge the state of someone's soul that approaches us. Um, but what I didn't say last week, and I, I should have, if someone like Governor Cuomo, or really name your Democratic politician these days who are Catholic, Pelosi, Biden, the whole... All those shvilabibs. If you were to, um, if they came up to communion, if they if they were present at a Catholic mass, I would, if I were a pastor, very discreetly say to them, "I'm asking you, do not approach the Eucharist. You talk to them privately, and you ask them not to, because it would be a public scandal for them to approach and receive. So you ask them not to, and you hope that they will honor that." And if they don't honor it, then I would refuse them communion. If you if you ask them, no, I don't want. Please do not approach, because of your stand on infanticide or whatever it is, publicly. Um, please do not approach communion. And they do it anyway. Then I would say, I'll give you a blessing. I don't care who they are. All right. Any questions of, about this section? When we, Father, one quick question. When we talk about the term invincible ignorance. We're going to talk about it later. Wow, you're, okay. really, you're really ahead of your time here, Vinny. Yeah, we're going, well, to, discuss I, that. I we're going to discuss that uh, in the next section. Okay. All right, so hold your question. Okay. And uh, take 15 minutes, and then we'll come back. Okay, thank you. ...of all humankind by communion with the life of the Trinity. It's clear that the Church plays a critically essential role. 
in the human race is attaining the destiny God wills for every human being. Now, that fact gives rise to an axiom in four Latin words. Extra ecclesiam nulla salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. I'm going to talk first about the origin and the development of that axiom. Okay? The use of that axiom by the fathers of the church's magisterium, certainly even Lumen Gentium 14 says, affirms the necessity of the church for salvation. That's a given. The church is necessary for salvation. Now, in 254, the theologian Origen, he's not a saint because he um, he's also the author of the Apocatastasis Heresy, where he said that in the end, uh, all hell, Satan, the, the fallen angels, uh, everyone would be restored and everyone would go to heaven. That was a heresy that was condemned. It cost him sainthood. He says in his work, De Nave Jesu, the Ark of Jesus, right? or the Boat of Jesus. Let no man deceive himself outside his this house, that is, outside the church, no one is saved. Now, in this work, Origen compares the church to Noah's Ark. Um, Technically, Origen is not a father of the church, but he was a great ecclesiastical writer. He's picking up an image of the church as Noah's Ark. And it can be seen when we look at 1 Peter 3, 20 to 22, which is where he undoubtedly got it from. Um, anyone, anyone, please read it. 1 Peter 3. I'll read it. God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to well, those who are washed in baptism are those who were washed in the flood. In other words, um, um, the people in the flood obviously really died, but you know they die to sin and they rise to new life. So the church is like Noah's Ark that saves people from the deluge uh, of of sin, the deluge of human history without Christ. Saint Cyprian, a few years later around 258, he said something similar. Uh, Anthony, please. Anthony Reiner. Sorry, Father, which one? Uh, St. Cyprian. Okay. The Lord says to Peter, I say to thee, thou, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not overcome it. 
It will give to thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And what thou shalt bind upon earth shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed also in heaven. And he says to him again after the resurrection, Feed my sheep. It is on him that he builds the church, and to him that he entrusts the sheep to feed. If a man does not hold fast to this oneness of Peter, does he imagine that he still holds the faith? If he deserts the chair of Peter, upon whom the church was built, has he still confidence that he is in the church? So again, Cyprian is touching upon the necessity of the church, the Catholic church, led by Peter for salvation. St. Augustine um, goes on. Uh, who would like to read for us? Okay. This is the Holy Church, the one church, the true church, the Catholic church, fighting against all heresies. Fight it can, be fought down, it cannot. Let us love our Lord God, let us love his church, him as a father, her as a mother, him as Lord, her as his handmaid. No man offends the one and wins the favor of the other. He will not have God for his father who refuses the church for his mother. What does it profit you not to have offended your father, since he will punish your offenses against your mother? What does it profit you to praise the Lord, to honor him, to preach him, to believe in his son, to confess that he sits at the right hand of God the Father, while at the same time you denigrate his church? Outside the church, you can find everything except salvation. You can have dignities, you can have sacraments, you can have sing, you can sing hallelujah, answer amen, have the gospels and have faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Spirit and preach it too. But you will find salvation in all the means of grace alone in the Catholic Church. Interesting how Augustine is saying what um, we read earlier in Lumen Gentium, right? And in the Catechism. All the means of grace alone are found in the Catholic Church. Now, the axiom then becomes the common property of the fathers who use it repeatedly. So we have St. Gregory the Great in 590-604. Now the whole church universal proclaims that God cannot be truly worshipped saving within herself, asserting that all they that are without her shall never be saved. Or Pope Innocent III, uh, centuries later. Um, go ahead, uh, Joan, read, uh, read Pope Innocent. With our hearts we believe and with our lips we confess, but one church, not that of the heretics, but the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church outside which we believe that no one is saved. All right, and then the fourth Lateran Council, this is the Ecumenical Council teaching infallibly in 1215, affirmed the axiom, there is indeed one universal church of the faithful, outside of which no one at all is saved. 
Now, these are very stark statements about the need to be Catholic in order to be saved. But we're going to look at the development of this teaching and the way that the church understands it today, which we will see is not so stark, but which builds upon what came before. Remember, all development of doctrine builds on what came before, okay? Like uh, the acorn uh, grows into a tree. So what we have here in these statements is the belief of the necessity of the Catholic Church for salvation. Now, when these statements were made, there was an absence of a nuanced understanding of human psychological development, and also the notion that Vinnie raised earlier of invincible ignorance, which we'll talk about uh, soon. The axiom, the axiom was often articulated early on in a way so as to suggest that anyone who is not formally a part of the Catholic Church uh, when, that, when he or she dies would be eternally lost. But this is not the way that the Catholic Church has come to understand uh, the necessity of the Church for salvation. Okay? As we come to a better understanding of human psychology, um, what a person says he or she believes or what he or she wants, uh, it's a multifaceted thing. Uh, and when you go beneath the surface, what a person professes to believe and what they and, and, and want maybe implicitly something other than what it seems to be on the surface, you know, implicitly. So what a person wills might be something different from what that person realized. So that understanding kind of uh, the deepening of our understanding of human psychology opens up the question of membership in the church to a little more complex analysis uh, from what we saw in those stark statements uh, by the early fathers. We have an impetus for a deeper awareness of the meaning of this idea of the necessity of the church for salvation uh, by an event that took place in the middle around the 15th, 16th century. We can see why the church begins to probe this question more deeply. Uh, think what the landscape was before the 15th century. At that time, the entire known world was basically Europe, Africa, and Asia. There isn't even an awareness that there's a continent uh, that exists beyond the sea that is populated by people who had no possibility of ever um, having heard the gospel or that our, or even that our Lord Jesus Christ existed, much less of a Catholic church. There were missionaries who had pushed even as far as China, but the discovery of a whole new continent populated by people who had not been touched by Western civilization gave rise to this deeper questioning, okay? So can it be that these people were lost, uh, that all their ancestors up to this moment are condemned to hell because they had no possibility of coming to know and accept Christ? Those questions gave rise naturally to a deeper reflection on this idea that the Catholic Church is necessary for salvation. And what the, actual, the axiom actually means uh, itself, right? So when, when theological questions arise in the church, 
we don't simply make up new teachings. We have to refer back to the scriptures and the teachings of the church and the fathers and how those teachings have been articulated and understood and analyzed more deeply in the past and see if there are seeds of a deeper understanding already present in our faith. Okay? And we can find that this question of the necessity of the church for salvation is a perfect example of how doctrine develops over time. Without rejecting or turning our back on the core of the previous teaching, there is a growth in our understanding and an opening up of what seemed like a matter of, of uh, fact, kind of a matter of fact doctrine, okay, into something a bit more vast and nuanced. And Dei Verbum number eight tells us this, right? Um, in speaking of the sacred deposit of faith, which comes from the apostles with the help of the Holy Spirit. And it says, there is growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. This happens through the contemplation and study made by believers who treasure these things in their hearts through a penetrating understanding of the spiritual realities which they experience and through the preaching of those who have received through Episcopal succession the sure gift of truth. As the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly moves forward toward the fullness of divine truth until her words of God reach their complete fulfillment in her. So this would be an example of that uh, particular development in the understanding of that axiom that was so starkly stated earlier on. The seeds that were already present in coming to the analogy, to analyze the question, by the way, um, are found all the way back to the very centuries of the church. Here we see how a particular doctrine of the church, namely the necessity of the Catholic Church for salvation, becomes the object of a development in which the church ponders under the guidance of the Holy Spirit um, the ability of God to act outside the normal channels that God himself has established. This is very important. Let us read now a rather extensive quote from Lumen Gentium 16 on this point. Um, someone. How about... Uh, uh, Anthony, you do it again, please. Sorry, which one? Lumen Gentium 16. Finally, those who have not yet received the gospel are related to the people of God in various ways. There is, first, that people to which the covenants and promises were made and from which Christ was born according to the flesh in view of the divine choice. There are people most dear for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts of God are without repentance. But the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place, amongst whom are the Moslems, these profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one, merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. 
nor is God remote from those who in shadows and images seek the unknown God, since he gives to all men life and breath and all things, and since the Savior wills all men to be saved. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it shall divine no sorry uh know it know it through the dictates of their conscience those too many achieve eternal salvation nor shall divine providence deny the assistance necessary for salvation to those who without any fault of theirs have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God, and who, not without grace, strive to lead a good life. Whatever good or truth is found amongst them is considered by the church to be a preparation for the gospel and given by him who enlightens all men, that they may at length have life. But very often, deceived by the evil one, men have become vain in their reasonings, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and served the world rather than the Creator, and or, el- and or else living and dying in the world without God, they are exposed to ultimate despair. Hence, to procure the glory of God and the salvation of all these, the Church, mindful of the Lord's command, preach the gospel to every creature, take zealous care to foster the missions. Okay, so that is a very important uh, paragraph in Lumen Gentium because it outlines for us the various groups of believers or unbelieving unbelievers and how God can save them. So the Jews, the Muslims, uh, you know, non-Christians, even those who do not uh, believe in God, who have not come up to a knowledge of God, if they follow the dictates of conscience and um, try to live good lives. Remember, all this is based on the salvi- universal salvific will of God, which which is quoted there in 1 Timothy 2.4, right? God wills all men and women to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So it's not like you're not going to uh, send uh, missionaries to these people. You do. Uh, we want them to know and come to know the truth, but not always. Does not this always doesn't always happen? You know, I mean, think about the the the, the tribes, the, the primitive tribes deep in the Amazon, that some tribes that have yet to be discovered. Even it's not their fault that they don't know Christ or the gospel. They've never heard of such a thing, right? Are they all going to hell, right? So the church is trying to apply this understanding that she is necessary for salvation, but not necessarily formal incorporation in her uh, visible structure. Another point we need to talk about here is baptism of desire. We did this when I taught sacramental theology, so this will just be a quick uh, overview. Um, St. Cyprian thought that when a baptized person lapsed from the faith, uh, that person needed to be rebaptized. That was never part of the church's belief or teaching, though. Okay, Once you've been baptized, baptism is forever. 
So there was a third century anonymous writer who wrote a tract called On Rebaptism. And he opposed St. Cyprian on that point. And he was right. He spoke of a spiritual baptism that can occur without the use of water when a person receives the grace of Christ extra sacramentally, uh, bringing about true contrition and inspiring the person to charity. In other words, this early Christian writing talks about the fact that when it's not possible for someone to be baptized with water, God, who has established baptism with water as the normal way, the ordinary means by which he confers his grace, he's not confined to a straitjacket the way he confers grace. God is perfectly free to act outside the sacramental system to bestow grace. Is he not? He can bestow grace outside of the sacrament of baptism if he chooses, because he wills all to be saved, right? This is rooted, again, in God's universal salvific will, okay? So that introduces into the idea that God is not bound, uh, he's not bound by the structures that he has established for the salvation of the human race. He's the author of the sacraments, but he's not bound by the sacramental system that he himself established. God is free to act as he pleases. A further development comes from Saint, in the time of St. Ambrose. Um, he wrote a funeral homily for the emperor Valentinian II. Um, Valentinian was a catechumen who had not yet been baptized. And he died before he could be baptized. And in his funeral sermon, he said, did he not obtain the grace which he desired? Did he not obtain what he asked for? Certainly he obtained it because he asked for it. The emperor was a catechumen who was preparing for baptism and had asked for baptism, but he died before he could receive it. That's a very important realization that St. Ambrose articulates in his sermon, uh, and that's become part of our ecclesiastical heritage. The desire for sacramental grace, even if something prevents the person from being able to actually receive the sacrament, that desire itself can be satisfied by God outside of the visible celebration of the sacrament in what came to be known as the baptism of desire, okay? Now, what takes this desire a step further, while it may be explicit in the case of Valentinian, with a greater awareness of human uh, psychological complexity, we can speak of an implicit desire. Implicit desire. If I knew this, then I would want this. It's not an explicit desire because I don't really know that I want that. But if I knew that there was a delicious free meal available in the next room, then I would want it. That's an implicit desire for that delicious meal. So perhaps it's possible that someone could have an implicit desire for baptism, 
uh, if only they knew that baptism is the ordinary way to be introduced into the life of God, if they knew that and believed that, they would desire it implicitly. Could not God, in virtue of that implicit desire and his total freedom to act, bring them to salvation? We see this uh, in one of the Office of Readings accounts uh, during, um, it was on the, um, I think it was, it was from the letter of St. Peter Claver when he served the Africans who arrived in the New World. Um, it's a beautiful reading. Uh, someone, uh, someone read that for us. How about the, uh, someone who has not, Paul? That letter from St. Peter Claver. The new world, this was when um, the African slaves were being brought over against their will, and they were in a terrible condition. And St. Peter Claver and his brothers, um, their ministry was to go and meet them on the beaches where the boats would arrive. And uh, they were hungry, they were cold, they were terrified, they even thought they were going to be eaten. And he went out and he writes this, he writes about that experience in this letter. So go ahead and read it, Paul. After this, it starts with. Paul, you're muted. Paul, Montanero. There were two Pauls in the class. I don't see that letter in the hand. I don't see it either, Father. It's not here, Father. It's not there. No. Oh. And oh. I had another senior moment. That's what why I was waiting for the other Paul to answer. Maybe you only gave it to him. <laughs> I was looking for it. No. Don't show favoritism. All right, let me read it then. Okay. It says, after this, we began, now this is to the natives, the, the slaves. We began an elementary instruction about baptism. That is the wonderful effects, the wonderful effects of the sacrament on body and soul. When by their answers to our question, they showed that they had sufficiently understood this, we went on to a more extensive instruction, namely about the one God who rewards and punishes each according to his merits and the rest. We asked them to make an act of contrition and to manifest their detestation of their sins. Finally, when they appeared sufficiently prepared, we declared to them the mysteries of the Trinity, the Incarnation, and the Passion, showing them Christ fastened to the cross as he is depicted on the baptismal font. We led them in reciting an act of contrition in their own language. All right, now... Now, these men knew about the sacrament of baptism and the Catholic faith because St. Peter Quaver uh, taught them, and then they desired baptism. One can assume, however, that had they known about it before the arrival of St. Peter Claver, they would have implicitly desired it since they already they readily accepted it once they heard about it. They had never heard about these things before, before, and they readily accepted it. So one can assume, rightly, I think, that they would have implicitly desired this if they had, even before Peter Kluger came on the scene. So even if a person who has not been touched by the gospel uh, could 
virtue of that implicit desire bring them to salvation? Right? See, very often I think we're the ones that like to say, no, no, it's, it's got to be this way. It's got to be this way or no, or no way. No. No. Um, God wants everyone to be saved. God is a God of mercy. Right? So the development of the church's teaching is yes. So it's not a question of being saved outside of the church. It's a question of who is totally and absolutely outside of the church. And we've already seen that baptism establishes a certain communion, although partial and imperfect, uh, with anyone who is baptized uh, with the Catholic Church. That person is not in any full sense outside of the Catholic Church. Right? They're not outside the Catholic Church fully. So this question of being outside of the church or needing to be in the church for salvation is actually, when you look at, when you analyze it more deeply, um, is a much more complex question than it might have seemed originally. And so, in the awareness of those early church fathers and ecclesiastical writers who spoke about the necessity of the church for salvation in such, in really such stark terms, we still believe in the necessity of the church for salvation, but we also believe that God can act outside of the structures of the church. God has the freedom to do that. Um, what's important for us to realize, too, is that God, even in those ways uh, that we mentioned, he can, he can be said to be acting through the church. Right? Before these natives were baptized, wasn't the church there? Right? In the person of Peter Claver? The church was there. Right? Um, God was acting through them. Right? In that moment. Every day when we celebrate the Mass, after the words of consecration, you'll hear a prayer for the whole world. It's precisely through those prayers that God is bringing about salvation, even for those who are outside of the church. So in a very real way, God is using the church all the time and her sacraments for salvation. Now the question of invincible ignorance comes up. Where do we think we get that idea? Any thoughts? One of the most obvious ones. From Psalm 22? Well, even before, even, yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, just when that psalm was written, but I mean, from the idea of Psalm 22. Okay, but Psalm 22 is very long. I know that, but I mean, shorter. Part, something, you know, is, something, something shorter and more recent on Good Friday. <laughs> Father, Father forgive them. They know not what they do. That's what I meant, yeah. It was Jesus who thought of this first. So Catechism Entry 1793. Um, go ahead, Joan. Let's hear you say it. Hey. You do have that, right? I do. Um, if, on the contrary, the ignorance is invincible, 
or the moral subject is not responsible for his erroneous judgment, the evil committed by the person cannot be imputed to him. It remains no less an evil, a privation, a dis disorder. One must therefore work to correct the errors of moral conscience. Okay, so there developed another idea in dealing with this question, beginning around the 19th century with the writings of um, Blessed Pope Pius IX, this idea of invincible ignorance. Now, here the word ignorance is to be understood in, in, a, in, a, in its simple etymological sense. That is to say, not knowing, not knowing. Um, from the Latin, you know, invincibilis, easily, not easily overcome. Uh, someone does not know for reasons that are not easily overcome through no fault of their own. Invincible means that the person would not be able to overcome his lack of knowledge by applying reasonable diligence. Okay, So in this case, invincible means, as the catechism said, in, inculp inculpable as well. The Catholic Dictionary, do you have that quote from the Catholic Dictionary there? Did I put, give it to you? Yes. Okay. Vinny, read that since you posed the question. Lack of knowledge, either of fact or law, for which a person is not morally responsible. This may be due to the difficulty of the object of the knowledge or scarcity of evidence or insufficient time or talent in the person or any other factor for which he is not culpable. Okay. So specifically, this teaching developed in Catholic papal and other teachings since around the mid-1800s. And it holds that such a person who is invincibly ignorant uh, of the necessity of the church for salvation could still be saved by the grace of Christ that God normally confers uh, through the Catholic church and her sacraments. In other words, if someone is outside of the church, not through their own fault, but through a failure to know that there even is a Catholic Church, or even that there is a Lord Jesus, um, or even if they know that there is a Catholic Church and may know something about the Catholic Church, is there some insurmountable reason that they cannot be brought to realize the need of the Catholic Church for salvation? I know many Protestants who do not understand this, uh, through no fault of their own. Uh, they simply were not raised to believe it or taught it. I have a very close friend who um, was raised as a nominal, a nominal Episcopalian. I mean, you know, he respects me. He came to my ordination. But, you know, he, he doesn't understand. Uh, he was never taught to believe this, you know. Um through no fault of his own. Uh, so are they all going to be damned? Or take the case of non-Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims. Uh, do they understand the need of the Catholic, uh, for the Catholic Church for salvation? Most of them are born into those religions and taught the religious beliefs of those religions. Are they culpable? Are we going to say they're all going to hell? 
because they're outside the visible boundaries of the church? Is that hold true for uncatechized baptized Catholics? That's exactly the question I was going to ask. Exactly. Uncatechized baptized Catholics? Which are which are many. Um it's possible, although they would have less excuse because they live in Western culture where um, they were at least nominally baptized, presumably. I mean, I don't even know, I don't know of any Catholics myself who don't practice the faith, who, are, who didn't insist that they get their babies get baptized and then receive communion and then get confirmation. Many of those uncatechized baptized Catholics uh, went through those sacraments of initiation so they're not totally uncatechized. But, but that, Father, that raises the question of Catholics' obligation to learn. I mean, if you, if you willfully uh, don't seek to learn the faith, that's almost it's, it's worse than in our eyes, at least the eyes of the church, than if you never knew anything. Well, that's true. That's why each individual case has to be looked at individually right um you can't make a blanket statement like yes or no to that question right um if the person was baptized received communion first communion and the sacrament of confirmation they at least got eight years of well not eight years but they just got they did get some catechesis if they lapse later on well you know then they're more responsible. They can't say they didn't know because they were taught it earlier on. They may have rejected it. They may have ignored it. They may have, maybe they had parents that don't practice the faith. That would be one thing. But then you have people, Catholics, who may have been baptized. And I do know of cases of this, many of them, who were baptized and then that was it. Baptized as babies yeah. And never received any catechesis. Didn't make their first communion. Didn't make confirmation. Their parents were negligent or indifferent, whatever the reason. Now, they would be, they certainly could be invincibly ignorant to no fault of their own. Especially living in our secular society. Yeah. I was going to say, there's a lot of Catholics that are cultural Catholics. Right. But they have not been able to you know, take in the faith. Their families don't expose them to them. They just go to a few events, you know, communion, confession, confirmation, maybe marriage, but that's it. That's it. Yeah. I remember when we were um, uh, training our confirmandi, one of the requirements was they were to write an essay why they, before wh why they wanted to receive confirmation. And most of the time, especially among the boys, I couldn't get over how many, I mean, some of them were very profound and very beautiful. Um, but others would say, because I want to get married in the church. That was the reason they gave. Might have been a parent uh, feeding them that answer. Maybe. I mean, that's not a, that's not, a, that's not, a, 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 I'm not saying that that isn't a noble reason. It's good to want to get married in the church. But it's not exactly, <laughs> it's not exactly the reason why we give the sacrament of confirmation and what it means, right? So to answer your question, I think you have to look at 
It depends, right? Father, could we go to the length of looking at our our how we train our catechists? You know. Sure. Yeah, I think that's that's very important. You know, because if they don't impart the the faith, um, maybe there's some responsibility in in the training to do that. Right. And you would hope that the catechists are going to Mass on Sunday, <clears throat> cough, <laughs> or religious teachers in our Catholic school who teach religion as part of the subject matter. You never see them at Mass. Mm. I, I mean, really. You could, you could say the same to a certain degree about homiletics, too, over the last 40 years, that a lot of priests are afraid to call people out. Yeah. All right. Well, let's look at um, what Pius the Ninth said. Now, here is Blessed Pius the Ninth. Uh, you have that quote? <clears throat> yes. Okay. So, uh, anybody there? I'll read it. I'll read Thank it. you. We know that those who are invincibly ignorant of our most holy religion and who observe diligently the natural law and its precepts written by God in the hearts of all, being disposed to obey God and who lead an honest and upright life, are able to reach eternal life with the help of divine light and grace. Diligently follow the natural law and precepts written on the human heart, are able to reach eternal life with the help. Isn't that good news? Yes. Oh. Mm -hmm. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that give you hope? Yes. Mm -hmm. Hope for people that you might be wondering about might go to hell. Yes. See, this is this is this is the God of mercy at work, right? Now, we know better because we know Catholics will be more severely judged in general if they don't live the faith, as Lumen Gentium said earlier on. Augustine said it too in another writing of his. So, you know, we're blessed to know the faith, you know. So basically what Pius IX is saying is the same thing that St. Ambrose said in his funeral homily for the Emperor Valentinian. Someone who desires to live a good life, even an atheist, who through no fault of their own come to an explicit belief, uh, cannot come to an explicit belief in God, uh, can be saved. Okay, why would a person seek to do good? Why does such a person believe that there is such a thing as right and wrong, uh, and live according to it? Right? Um, is it some implicit notion of God? What that person is rejecting is not the true God, but maybe some caricature of God that's been presented to that person. Um, we might be dealing with someone who has an implicit desire to know God. And an even an implicit desire to be part of the structure that God has placed in the world for salvation, the Catholic Church. Okay, so the Vatican's holy office, which, by the way, was the forerunner of the uh, today's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, it wrote the following: To gain eternal salvation, it is not always required that a person be incorporated in reality as a member of the Church. 
but it is required that he belong to her at least in desire and longing. See? It doesn't necessarily need to be explicit, as in the case of catechumens who have actually asked for baptism. Okay? They have, uh, Lumen Gentium 14 tells us that they, they, are, they have a desire with an explicit intention to be incorporated in the church. Okay? So, outside the church, there is no salvation, is not so much an answer to the question, who is it that will be saved, as to the question, why is, why is there a church? Why is there a church? God has established the Catholic Church as the normal instrument of salvation. Though it's possible for people to be saved who have not found their way into her for various reasons. Okay, so, Father, how did that jive with two particular statements from our Lord? And, and I'm sure they do somehow. But the first one being, nobody comes to the Father except through me. And the second one, uh, that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life everlasting. Again, we're dealing with questions of invincible ignorance. How many people don't know or don't believe that this is the true body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist? How many Catholics were taught that and no longer availed themselves of it? Much less people who haven't been raised in the Catholic faith or outside her visible structures. They don't know that. They don't even know, and they're told by their own ministers that it means something else. Through no fault of their own. So we're relying really on our Lord's mercy. Yes, because ultimately he's the one who will judge all of us. But St. Augustine says Catholics will be more severely judged who have been given this knowledge of the truth and fail to live by it. I'm more concerned about a lapsed Catholic salvation than I am about some, you know, Buddhist in Indonesia who, who has hardly ever heard of Christ, who's living, who's living a righteous life according to those principles. Father? I just had, uh, had two questions. Um, the first one was about invincible ignorance, um, whether that is what would be used to explain, um, say, the salvation of someone who is born with like a, a mental disability. Mm -hmm. If that would, so it is, it, it, that, that would also be a case of invincible ignorance? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, because they're not even capable. If they have a mental defect, a serious mental defect, um, you know, they would not even perhaps be even be capable of grasping the sublimity and depth of these truths. Again, it depends on the, the, the nature of the defect and how severe it is. I had a parishioner who, whose daughter was gravely disabled from birth. Um, I don't think she ever, she ever reached, she, I mean, she was in a wheelchair her whole life. Uh, she died when she was about 41, but she never really reached more than four years of age, maybe five. 
according to the doctors. Her mother brought her to Mass every day. She was baptized. She couldn't even receive communion because she didn't understand what it is. That poor child, I'm sure, uh, has, has went straight to heaven. And her mother and father, who cared for her, loved her, took care of her day in and day out. They're, they're, to me, they're saints. Okay. Wow. We've been going the whole time these days. Now, next week, you might get out a little earlier because the lecture is shorter. And it is on the Blessed Virgin Mary. So we have a beautiful topic to conclude our class on. And then um, with the remaining time, and then touch on the... touch on the final exam uh, about what that basically um, we'll just I'm basically just going to send you the exam um, the night of the class and then um, when you have it you'll answer it on um, type out the answers and email it back to me so it's more or less a take-home exam. Uh, Father O'Reilly just sent the faculty uh, a notice about that, an email about that. He said either a take-home or an oral exam. But I'm not going to give an oral exam to 22 students in this class any more than I'm going to give one to my spiritual theology class where I have 32 seminarians. Oral exam, Father, they said. Yeah, right. I'm going to sit here and, and do 32 oral exams. I'll be uh, I'll be in a book of box by the time I'm finished. <laughs> so, Father, when you say that you're going to give us the exam that that night, do you want the responses back that night? Or yes, you'll just... have you'll have two and a half hours to to answer them and, okay. and email it back to me that night. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. Can we handwrite our answers? Because I don't type. You don't type. No. What do you mean you don't type? I'm sorry. How did you get through law school without no, typing? In those days, you didn't need it, Father. It was, you know, it was Lincoln and me and everybody. So. But, Vinny, your, your handwriting is like chicken scratch. It's horrible. I know, Father. You're right. All right, I'll try to get... All right, I'll try to... I mean, I'll get, you... I'll get my son in with me and I'll have I'll dictate to him. There you go. Right. Get a secretary, Vinny. I have a couple, but they're all off. Well, get your son, you know. Oh, well, all right, Father. I'll do it. Okay. Well, when is the book review due? Huh? I'm sorry. You're breaking the up, book Molly. review. What? The book review. When is that due? Monday. I know. I, I thought... Yeah. Uh, I the believe book review. When is it due? Book review. Isn't it due the last day Monday? of class? No, you said. I think it's next Monday. Day of the final. Whatever the syllabus says. I don't know. Whatever <laughs> the syllabus says. Look at your syllabus. Yes. The syllabus says twenty-seven. When? What? The syllabus says the twenty-seven. Oh my God. So that's oh. uh, the last day of class. Isn't it? <laughs> No, that's next week. But oh, I don't care. Look, the last day of class. 
No. Colleen, you sound drunk. Yeah, Colleen, yes. your internet. Well, hang on, Colleen. Hang on. Your internet is, is breaking up. I looked it up today. I looked it up Have today. Have you been the bottle said, on the side here? No, <laughs> water she's drinking. I know. I had to switch to a second. I think we have to give her invincible ignorance on this one. Why don't you just say the, 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 the book review will be due uh, the day. Oh, my God. Please. The book review will be due the, the, the last the, the day of the final exam. That gives you another two weeks. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you. All right. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy God Spirit. God bless you, Father. All right. God bless you all. Stay safe. Um, Anthony, especially, Doctor. You're in my prayers. All your safety. Thank you, See sir. See you next week. Thank See you. you. So long, Father. Thank you. See you, guys. Leave.